Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, maybe it's time for us to start. I want to welcome you all to yet another highly successful SACPA session. Uh, I think it's very smart to come to this one. This is a very, very big issue for all of us. And Knud always reminds me, well, make sure you pick issues that are relevant to, to, to our life. Well, this one is really relevant. We, as you know, this is the second one on pesticides. The previous one was three months ago, uh, delivered by Dr. Claudia Sheedy from the research station, who is an analytical chemist, and she identifies residues and pesticides in water samples and so on. And then, of course, once you get that data, then you need somebody to say, well, what does it all mean? Well, we have that person with us today. Um, in fact, I, I'm, I was... Um, I was actually, I was embarrassed. I, I, I didn't know that Dr. Huntler was at the, at the university, at, at the University of Lethbridge, because I failed to Google U of L for pesticide academics and so on, because surely there's nobody up there, you know. Well, Dr. Huntler told me, well, never forget to Google uh, U of L. Uh, but anyway, I'm jumping ahead of myself. My name is Klaus Jericho. I'm your moderator today. And it's all about toxicology of pesticides, which in itself is a very sort of a provocative statement, isn't it? Toxicology of pesticides. So uh, I just want to uh, remind you to make your contribution of $10 to the basket. And we... Mm. Mm. Eleven dollars, yes, and um, and we want to thank uh, Country Kitchen for the wonderful service and the meals, and we want to thank uh, for communication and promotion of the SACPA uh, at Shaw and uh, uh, the Lethbridge Herald and the University of Lethbridge. But um, above all, I think we all des- we we have to recognize the wonderful work done by the board and by Knudy and by Lisa. I think they have done an amazing job over the time, over the years. Uh, and I, this is rather timely to make this comment because I hear with sadness and tears are still flowing out of my eyes that Lisa is leaving us in about two weeks or so. She's being promoted somewhere else. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lisa, for all your efforts. Okay, just a very quick comment about... Just a very quick comment about this picture. It, uh, as you can see, it's a sprayer, but those machines are sophisticated. Can be there attached to the satellites, because if you spray over or drive over an area which has been sprayed before, these some nozzles will turn off automatically. And um, without these sprayers, this this particular machine, they have tanks which can hold a thousand liters of pesticide mixture. And uh, they spray for fungi, they spray for insects, and they spray for 
weeds, herbs. So, uh, and my friend up in uh, Champion, who's uh, farmed 6,000 acres, he says, well, without this machine, I could not grow my monoculture crops. And that's what it's all about, monoculture crops. You need this machine to produce the food we are consuming. And today, Dr. Hontele is here to tell us the impact of these chemicals as they come out of these machines. Not only on those machines, but also as we use them in our gardens and uh, on our lawns and wherever we think we should use them to make life a little bit more pleasant for ourselves. Um, so Dr. Hontela is highly qualified for this, uh, for this task. Her job is to assess the impact of these pesticides. She does research on it, and she is the, um, uh, the Canadian Research Chair of Ecotoxicology. Well, let me explain that. First of all, the Canadian Research Chair, that means it is a position that is funded by the federal government, and they decided to put that expertise into the University of Lethbridge, and, uh, and Dr. Huntler is the person who is doing this work, assessing the um, impact of these pesticides. And as I said before, if you Google pesticides and academics, in Alberta only two people come up. One is Dr. Huntelan, the other one is Dr. Uh, Shidi. These two people <laughs> are running the show um, as to defining and assessing what these things do and what harm they may also do. So Highly qualified Dr. Hunterler, she is a PhD from Alberta, she has worked at the University of Montreal, and she has worked in the medical department of um, the University of uh, Calgary. Uh, so I think without further ado, I will ask her to come up and tell us all about toxicology of pesticides, mechanism of action, and impact on health. Now that is a mouthful. Please. Well, good afternoon. It is a great pleasure and a great challenge to be here and uh, present to you some information about pesticides. I, uh, I want to thank Klaus for uh, organizing this. I actually been here maybe eight years ago and I gave a talk here. Maybe some of you may remember me. And uh, I find it quite surprising that when you Google pesticides in Alberta, that only two people come up. So that is something very significant and keep that in mind, we'll, we'll come back to that. So um, in, my, in my presentation, I will, I will not tell you on the end whether Southern Alberta is a safe place to live. I'm not going to tell you whether your pesticide of choice is okay. Uh, what I will do, I will talk about some different types of pesticides, the modes of action that are relevant to, to health effects, uh, I will talk about the risk-benefit analysis, which is very important and very uh, complicated for pesticides. And I will also formulate some concerns and the very serious uh, knowledge gaps that, that we have. So everybody knows, I'm sure in this room, that pesticides are 
chemicals. They can be natural or they can be man-made. They can be synthetic. And there are substances that we use to destroy organisms that we do not want to have around us, right? Organisms that are considered as pests. So the term pesticides covers or includes specific pesticides for these different species. So different types of pesticides are insecticides that kill insects, herbicides, fungicides, rodenticides. Basically, any living organisms that you can have, there is a chemical that can be used as a pesticide to kill it and get rid of it, right? In the classical definition of pesticides, even attractants, repellents, growth promoters are included in the category of pesticides. So pesticides is a big term. Now, different types of pesticides target different organisms. They may act through different mode of action, and we'll talk about that. And in red, I have target species versus non-target species. So this is an important concept. The pest is the target species that we want to get rid of through the use of the pesticide. There may be non-target species that may be also affected. And you all have heard about the problem with bees, right? There's a huge problem with bees, and there is a potential link to use of insecticides that may be killing the pests that we want to kill, but they may also affect bees or other beneficial insects, such as pollinators. So target species and non-target species, we are non-target species as well, right? We are non-target species that can be affected by pesticides. Alberta uses a lot of pesticides, and in this pie chart that I got from the uh, Alberta Environment website, you can see in blue that herbicides are the pesticides used the most in Alberta, right? 82% of pesticides are herbicides. Insecticides in the orange wedge and fungicide are a much smaller percentage. Uh, adjuvants, maybe you don't know, some of you might know, are chemicals that we add to the pesticide to make them either penetrate the membranes, to stick better, for example, to plants, and they are called inert ingredients. They do not kill the organism necessarily, but they are added to the formulation. The, this is all pesticides used in Alberta, and on top you can see that 96.5% of pesticides used in Alberta are used by the agricultural sector. And of course, Southern Alberta is big in agriculture. Only 2.7% are commercial industrial uses, and a tiny fraction, 0.7%, is domestic, domestic uses. My lawn, my rose bushes may be that use, right? So agriculture is definitely the biggest uh, uh, sector that uses pesticides. This uh, other table, and I'm just showing this to you too, you may know this, but I think it's interesting. You can see river basins, so Old Man River is on top, and it compares 2003 and 2008, and you can see that Old Man River Basin is the biggest user of pesticides in Alberta, or compared to the other basins, right? Red Deer River, Battle River, use less pesticides than we use in our basin. If you look at 2003 and 2008, 
for all the basins, including the Oldman River that you can focus on, we are increasing the use of pesticides. So compared to 2003, in 2008, we are using more than we did before, right? So our use of pesticides is not going down, it's going up, and we definitely need to think about the health effects, potential health effects. Below the table, I show, I'm showing you that there are over 1,000 active ingredients that are registered as pesticides, and these are formulated into thousands of products that we can buy on the market, we as agriculture workers or as, as people in our household and so on. So enormously large number of pesticides. And these formulations would always have the active ingredient. So on top of the table, 2008 says kilogram AI. AI means active ingredient, right? So active ingredient is the chemical that actually kills the pest. But then there may be also those inert ingredients which are added to make the pesticide work better. So let's get to the point that you are probably interested in, right? So the use of pesticides, we rely on what we call risk-benefit analysis. The risks, what are the risks? It's fairly straightforward. There are the potential risks to our health, us as the non-target species, and health of other organisms that are non-target, the bees, the birds, the fish, the frogs, and so on. Those are all risks that are part of this equation. The benefits part of this ratio are probably obvious to all of us. We can increase our food production. We can increase the profits we make from that food production. We can improve the quality of the food, right? The, the, the apples, the, the vegetables that we may grow look better if they don't have marks from insects and so on, right? So those are all the benefits, increased food production. Uh, a very important benefit, of course, is control of vector-borne diseases, and malaria is the most famous one. If we would not use insecticides to kill insects, to kill mosquitoes, there would be malaria and there would be deaths. And we can actually say so many people would die from malaria in Africa, in other countries, if we do not use those pesticides. Right? In Winnipeg, during the huge mosquito outbreaks, they are using malathion, which is an organophosphate pesticide, to bring down the mosquito outbreaks so that there would be not West Nile virus diseases, right? So those are all the benefits. We assume that those benefits are much greater than the risk, and we actually hope, all of us hope, that the risks are small, right? The table I have below, and that's all from my class in, I teach toxicology at the university, this is World Health Organization, and they classify pesticides by hazard, and they use the LD50, which is the dose that would kill 50% of a test population of rats in a lab in during testing, right? And you can see that 1A class is extremely hazardous because the LD50 is very, very small. So we all hope that the pesticides we use around us in southern Alberta and elsewhere would be in the category 4 plus, unlikely to present hazard, right? And the LD50 would be very, very large. It would take a lot to kill that test rat, right? But I'm bringing this in just to introduce the idea 
that it's not all 100% safe. We can kill non-target species with the pesticides. So this, uh, this book, I haven't read it, and I'm just showing it to you to express this idea that there is a huge concern. And the concern is, are there regulations, the current regulations that we hope are followed, are they safe enough to ensure healthy living of us, our children, and of course our environment as well, in which we live, right? So some of these, there's a lot of documents like that on the web, and this is just one of them, right? So there is a concern, there is a, we are not easy, we are not, we don't have a peace of mind with the use of pesticides. So what I'll do fairly quickly, I have about 28 slides in total, is I'm gonna compare two types of pesticides. The first one belongs to the group of insecticides, so those are pesticides that kill insects, and I chose those to show you what I would call a universal mode of action, right? Most insecticides, including the malathion that they use in Winnipeg, act, kill the pests, which are the insects, by acting on the nervous system of these organisms, right? And the mechanism of action, I, I give you three bullets, interfere with membrane of ions, uh, transfer of ions, inhibition of specific enzymes required for transmission, in interference with release or breakdown of neurotransmitters. We are getting into physiology and biochemistry, and I'll just touch on that, but all these insecticides have a very similar mode of action. They do act on the nervous system of the pest. This is from my physiology class, because I also teach physiology. The picture on, the, on your left is a neuron with a cell body in yellow, an axon, and then we have the terminals right here, and there are neurotransmitters produced in those ter terminals. On the right, you have a pathway that could go from a receptor, for example, in your hand, and there are neurons relaying the information about, let's say, I'm touching this table right now. It goes into the brain, neuron from neuron from neuron. Neurotransmitters are released. There are ions being pumped in and out and so on. And eventually we do, I feel that this table is cold, right? So there is a fine pathway that is totally dependent on neurotransmitters. So insecticides work by interfering with that. And you may think that insecticides of natural origin might be safer or might be better, and that's not at all true. And I'm giving you two examples here of botanical insecticides. One category in red is pyrethroids, which, are, which come from chrysanthemum, from beautiful flowers. About 25% of the insecticide market are pyrethroids because they're very popular. We buy them because we say they're natural. They're okay, but they also kill the pests and potentially non-target species by interfering with voltage-sensitive sodium channels. That's physiology, but it is part of the membrane of the neuron. Nicotine or neonicotinoids, which come from the tobacco plant, are also natural, and they kill by infer interfering with acetylcholine in the nervous synapses. Rotenone, totally natural. It's a plant alkaloid. 
blocks electron transport in mitochondria. So just because it's natural doesn't mean it's any safer for us or for the target species, which is the insect, because they do get killed by it as well. So in this table, which is straight from my toxicology class, I put a red arrow by insecticides that are called organophosphate and carbamate. It's a very important family of insecticides. They work by the effect is inhibition. You can see that on the right. And the red arrow shows that it's an inhibition of a very specific enzyme called acetylcholine esterase. That's how organophosphate and carbamate pesticides, malathion, carbaryl, and so on, work, right? So I'll just show you. So here are, these are some of these uh, organophosphate insecticides, and you probably know some of them, malathion, chlorpyrifos, methylparathion. Those are all organophosphate. They're all insecticides, and they kill by blocking that one key enzyme. And here I'm showing you where that enzyme is. So the top of the picture is the end of one neuron. Then we have the synaptic cleft, the space in between, the first neuron and the second, which is on the bottom. And right there is acetylcholine esterase, the enzyme that normally would break down acetylcholine, which is shown in purple triangles. And that's the neurotransmitter that is released at that synapse and normally would then bind to a receptor on the next neuron. Acetylcholine esterase normally would break down some of that acetylcholine, right? So in green, we have the normal pathway, acetylcholine, but binding to the receptor, which is shown in green. If we use a in yellow, we show acetylcholine esterase in little yellow stars that breaks down, controls the level of the neurotransmitter that actually gets to that, to that synapse downstream. And in red, we have OP, which means organophosphate pesticide, that inhibits acetylcholine esterase. So acetylcholine esterase, the enzyme doesn't work now. It's blocked by the pesticide. And it's true whether it's me or a mosquito or a frog, or a fish. We all have acetylcholine. We all have acetylcholine esterase. Okay? And now there's going to be an excess of acetylcholine because acetylcholine is not getting broken down by the enzyme. The enzyme is blocked by the pesticide. So that is the mode of action of these particular pesticides. And in my physiology class, at exam time, students have to know what happens if there is an excess of acetylcholine. And you don't have to read this table, but I can tell you that what happens is the heart will slow down and may eventually stop. Muscles will start to twitch and go into tetanus, and that's how the insect pest is killed. And if you and I, by mistake, drink some of the pesticide in our garage, same thing will happen to us. All right? So this is all known. We know that. We've known this for a long time. Where it gets interesting, I think, is here. L look at this slide very carefully. So these are new studies done in the Salinas Valley in California. And it shows you a little map, and it shows you the Green Valley, which is right by the Salinas River. It's a highly intensive agricultural region in California. They use pesticides. I don't have the number, but I'm sure they use them as much as we do, maybe more. 
right? But it's a very intense agriculture. The whole green part is all agriculture, and it's heavily used uh, treated with pesticides. There is a new study, and it's called CHAMACO study, and CHAMACO stands for Center for the Health Assessment of Mothers and Children of Salinas. So those are the, the abbreviations. It is funded by US EPA, NOISH, National Institute of, of uh, Safe and Healthy, uh, Environmental Health Sciences National Institute. So huge, huge funding, millions of money goes into this study. And I just will show you two slides on that because I think it's very important that we know about this. The first graph shows you working memory in children, right? So in this study, they actually monitor children born in the Salinas Valley in, from 2000, 2000 to 2002. So those children are now becoming 14, 12 years old, right? And some of these publications are coming out now. So this is uh, Environmental Health Perspectives, uh, 2011. That's a really big journal of top quality, right? That's where this graph is coming from. So what they found is that if you look at the um, x-axis on this graph, it's prenatal urinary metabolites, DAP. Those are metabolites of organophosphate insecticide. Right? And they could measure in the mother, pregnant mother, or they could also measure in the children. And then on the y-axis, you have working memory in A, you have processing speed in B. To make a long, long, very important story short, what they did is they measured the metabolites, they test IQ, they test memory in these children, and they showed a very significant link with exposure of the mother to these organophosphate pesticides and a, lo a lower IQ and lower memory in the children. This is important, right? And this is 2011. I'm not going to produce a study like that from Southern Alberta. I don't have the funding for it, and it is not my exact expertise. But these kind of studies are coming out. And the next one here is from the similar, from the same Chamaco study by another author, but part of the same theme, and those are enormous theme of people working on this. And here, I'm not going to go into details, but they compared boys and girls, three years old and five years old. And they compared different metrics of what we all know, it's called attention deficit disorder and various learning disabilities. And in this study, they have pretty solid data to link those metabolites in the urine. So again, it's the exposure to organophosphate. So more metabolites in the urine, greater exposure. And in this graph, they actually show that the, uh, the boys were more affected than girls, right? So they were showing symptoms of attention deficits. And it was more obvious at f age five than age three. Those are serious findings, right? So this is California, huge funding. My question is, what about us here? Do we know anything about our children? Do we know anything about our exposure? And I know the answer, we don't, we don't, right? Okay, I'm going to just very quickly talk about herbicides very briefly because herbicides are pesticides that kill plants that we don't want, 
And the mode of action is not universal. So if you look at this table for herbicide, and again, it's from my class, and it's from a very good book called Cassart and Dual Toxicology. And in this table, it shows you different chemical classes, and you may know some of them. Glyphosate, you probably know, right? Roundup crops have all glyphosate. And the mechanism of action, it's very diverse. And we do not share the same biology with plants, right? So, for example, if you look at uh, mechanism auxin growth regulators, auxins are plant hormones that influence growth. We don't have those hormones. So when we are exposed to 2,4-D, which is a phenoxy acid that mimics plant hormones, we are not going to be affected the same way as the plant, right? So this is very different from those insecticides where we share the same acetylcholine esterase, the same acetylcholine, the same synapses, and we are affected, right? If you look down in the table, for example, bipyridyl, paraquat. Paraquat is a herbicide. It works by disrupting the cell membrane. Well, we all have cell membranes, right? So paraquat may kill plants by disrupting their cell membrane. It will also affect us. And in this slide here, it shows you paraquat. I'm not going to go into details, but paraquat is also a lung toxicant, and it will exert a very serious lung toxicity in human, right? Even though it's a plant pesticide. If I just go back to other herbicides very quickly, so 2,4-D, and Dr. Shiri told you a few weeks ago that 2,4-D is detected in all the samples that she tested. We used huge amounts of 2,4-D. 2,4-D mimics those plant hormones. So the, I'm not so concerned about it, but in the literature, there was a link to non-Hodgkin lymphoma in Canadian farmers. And I can tell you, I, I checked the literature again, and in, from 2010 to 2014, there was 13,906 publications on 2,4-D. And the link between cancer, lymphoma, the non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and exposure to 2,4-D is not clear, and actually it has been declared that it's not at all significant, right? So it's not all bad news, uh, and I think, I hope that I'm making you a little bit happy right now. Okay. The bad news about 2,4-D, it is detected in groundwater in the U.S. and Canada, and it is uh, very much present everywhere. Okay. I'm going to skip this because Klaus is already showing me five minutes. And I'm going to go into this. This is the last part that I want to make sure I have a few minutes to tell you about. The risk assessment. So how do we assess the, the use of pesticides? How do we decide that the pesticide is safe to use? So we do what's called a risk assessment. US EPA does it. Health Canada, specifically the PMRA, Pest Management Regulatory Agency, does that. And we hope that they do a good job. The first step is hazard identification. What is the structure of the pesticide? How likely is it to have some negative effects? Does it have any negative effects? Step two, dose response assessment. Is there a link between an effect and the dose that we may be exposed to? Like we showed in the Chamaco study with the uh, IQ and so on. Exposure assessment. What are we actually likely to be exposed through air, water, or food? And are those exposure levels high enough to 
potentially cause problems. And then we do a risk characterization. I'll skip this. Now, this is a very important slide, and it is on the web. You can go check it yourselves. The risk for pesticides, we, go, we, we do a risk-benefit analysis, right? And on the top, the top two systems, the decision is very easy to make. Because if you look on the left side, right, the risk is high. Benefit is low. It is easy to decide that we must either take that pesticide away from the market or not even use it at all, right? That's an easy decision. Next to it, we have low risks and high benefits. That's also easy to decide. And we can say, okay, let's go ahead with this one. We'll, we will use this pesticide. Unfortunately, a lot of pesticides fall into the category that's on the bottom where there are some risks and about equal benefits. And it's not easy to decide, should we go ahead and use them or not, right? And then we go into the value component, economics, how bad are the pests that we want to get rid of? Are we willing to accept those risks, right? And I'll show you here a very interesting case, which is a case of Dinoseb. Dinoseb was a herbicide. It was approved in 1948. There was safety data provided by a lab. And then it took 40 years to ban it. So it was banned in 1986 by US EPA because it was shown to have to cause birth defects in rats and rabbits and possibly human. So it was taken out of the market. So that's good, right? But then six months later, it was made available in four states in the US, even though we knew the risks, right? And the, Last two bullets are important. The risk estimates were not challenged by anybody. We all knew the risks of birth defects. But the benefit portion was made more significant because the crops could not be grown without using Dinoseb. So the ratio was changed, and Dinoseb went back on the market in those four states. So I call that a floating risk-benefit ratio, and that is very dangerous because then we might, because of economics, we might accept to use a pesticide or a pesticide might be put on the market even though the risks are a little bit too high, right? My last slide, or second last, what are the, con the big concerns? So my, and when I say my, I mean my colleagues as well. I, I'm on the editorial board, or board of Journal of Applied Toxicology. We have articles on pesticides all the time. Many of these issues come up in the journal. The data on risks, health effects on humans and environmental effects are still limited. It is very difficult to detect subtle effects, especially in human population, especially in children, right? So something like an effect on IQ. How do we know what our child could have been? We do not, we do not have another child that was not exposed to pesticides. Right? We take our child and we love the child. And we, we don't know what could have been different. Right? So when I say lack of control, that's what I mean. It's very difficult to pick out subtle effects on human health with the tools we have at, 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 at our disposal. Lack of historical data. We, don't know, we do not know, always know what the environment used to be like. We all know, oh, there used to be frogs there and now there aren't. 
that's easy. That's easy to pick up. But there may be other species that we don't even know about, and they have maybe already, maybe they already disappeared. So that is the, 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 the data on risk is very limited. We, it's difficult to estimate the cost, the cost to, to society of loss of diversity, biodiversity, the, the loss of peace of mind, right? You are sitting here because you are interested in pesticides. You maybe are worried about them, right? We don't know how much, what is that worth to actually be, to have a peace of mind. So that all would go into the risks. The benefits, we are very much focused on economic gains, right? We do want to have the highest production in our crops. We are pressured. I mean, we have to survive on, the, on a very competitive market. So that's the emphasis. And we don't have as much data on alternatives, on other ways of maybe limiting the pests or the infestations, uh, other means to... Uh, maintain our productivity. Those are very challenging, challenging uh, aspects. And my last big concern is that at present time, research funding for environmental research is getting cut very significantly. And environmental agencies that would be responsible for maybe testing new pesticides or reevaluating the old ones are also getting cut. So who is going to be doing this, right? Who is going to be taking care of us and ensuring that the products that we put on the market are safe and that the risks are as small as they can be? With the cuts to the funding and whole departments of various government agencies getting closed down, and I know because I have colleagues there, uh, that's very serious, which means we will be likely to take shortcuts and we will be likely to focus on economic, economics, and we will not pay attention to those pos possibly subtle but very significant health effects. So my last slide. Oh, this is actually my last, uh, second last. This just shows you. This just shows you the costs of testing. On the right, you have the costs of testing pesticides. It's thousands and thousands of dollars to do the tests to determine whether it's carcinogenic or not, whether it's teratogenic or not. It costs a lot of money. And on the left, table 22, you have the test that should be done. So who is going to be doing them if there is no funding? All right? So my real last slide, because I can see Klaus, is I think it's very important to shift our priorities. And yes, we do have to think about econo economics, of course, we want to provide for our children and make sure they have a nice life and nice house and they go on holidays and all that. But we also have to worry about the environment and those subtle health effects. And I think education is very important. And next time you need an expert, you must click on University of Lethbridge. <clears throat> there are many experts there. I see one there right there, Dr. Kinzel, hydrologist from my university. So... That's all I have to tell you. I hope that I gave you some information that's important, and I do have some other slides, but maybe during the question period we can, we can, go, we can look at those. So thank you.